Hello, I'm Eric Sorensen, and welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, May 20th. On this Sunday, intense negotiations for a NAFTA deal before the end of the month, and clear differences are emerging. How close is an agreement? The sticking points, and what happens if there is no deal soon? Then, Canada's first female Chief Justice, Beverly McLaughlin, left the Supreme Court last December. After years interpreting the law and dealing with the facts, she has turned to fiction. We'll ask the author and former Chief Justice what lessons she brought from the bench to her book, Full Disclosure. Plus, a return to our occasional series, Food for Thought. We'll head down the street from Parliament Hill for a conversation with Treasury Board President Scott Bryson. But first, late last week, Foreign Minister Christia Freeland headed back to Washington to push NAFTA towards a deal. The U.S. Congress has given negotiators a little more time till the end of the month. After that, the congressional process would push the deal beyond the midterm elections in November. So, are we close? Here's what the Prime Minister said last week in New York. To be honest, we're down to a point where there is a good deal on the table. But hours later, U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer released a statement saying NAFTA countries are nowhere near close to a deal. What to make of such stark public differences? Joining us now from Toronto is former U.S. Ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman. Ambassador Heyman, thank you for joining us. You understand Good to be here. the diplomacy between our two countries. Um, how could our Prime Minister and the U.S. Trade Representative be so off-key with each other at this stage of the talks? So, you know, one of the things I learned uh, very clearly after being in Canada is that two people can look at the exact same thing, see it completely differently, and both be absolutely correct. Think of a glass half full and the optimist saying it is half full, but the pessimist saying it's half empty and we're nowhere near full. So in this particular case, I think if the U.S. administration wants a deal, there is a deal to be had here. And I think the prime minister is absolutely correct. There's a deal to be had. Um, we have the best trading relationship in the world with Canada. And I would say also in this particular case with Mexico and Canada as part of NAFTA. And I think that business leaders, members of Congress, um, I would say the Chamber of Commerce, I would say the farmers, uh, everybody would like to see us get this behind us and have a good and fair updated NAFTA. Uh, so it, it's capable of getting done, but we're getting down to some short strokes here because of the clock. Is there, is there a sort of an audience of one when each of them was speaking? They're both wanting to reach Donald Trump and the immediate people around him to, to sort of send a particular type of message? I think you're hitting the nail right on the head. So there are competing interests, and let's just stay in the Republican Party for a minute. If you look in the Republican Party, which controls the House, the Senate, and the administration, if you look at the Republican Party, I think that there are constituencies in that party that want this deal done, that know the value of it, they understand the economics, they understand the importance of the U.S.-Canada relationship, and I'd say even the Republican governors of all those states that have their number one export market is Canada. I think they want a deal done. There are others that seem to be a bit more intransient, and they're fighting deals. Um, these are the people who are whispering in Donald Trump's ear or himself that walked away from Paris, that walked away from TPP, that just walked away from Iran, that just walked away from so many other deals, that this is the battle that's going on, I think, within the administration. Um, but from my perspective, this deal should happen. There's no better partner or trading relationship that the U.S. has uh, than with Canada. 
If they could just persuade that there is a win here to be had. I mean, Mr. Lighthizer yeah. named at least half a dozen issues that he thinks are still outstanding, and they are big ones, intellectual property, agricultural access, that would be our marketing boards, energy, labor, right. rules of origin. Uh, what are the main sticking points, do you think? So I think that they're, first of all, they've worked very hard, all three countries, over the last several weeks on what is called ROO, Rules of Origin. This is on content on U.S. automobiles or North American automobiles and the amount of U.S. content and North American content. That's where the battle's been going back and forth. And then they've tried to find some creative ways to deal with wages even. If, if they can adjust wages, then maybe the content rules will be different. I think a lot of progress was made there over the last few weeks. And again, I think that that gap can be closed. The other things I don't think have actually been touched significantly yet and uh, are is still work in progress, like a sunset clause, which is a no-go zone for the Canadians, um, like dispute resolution, which is covered in a number of chapters um, in this 30-chapter uh, agreement, and very important to the Canadians when they got into NAFTA. I think it's going to be very important going forward, and I totally understand that. So there are these issues, but those were placed by the administration late in the game. And, uh, you know, either they're negotiating points or they're impediments. And I think that the jury's out um, where this administration's going to fall on this. But a lot of threats are being made right now uh, by the White House, um, which, you know, is unfortunate that you have to fall, at, at, you know, into threats at this stage of the game. The U.S. Congress has more or less put down a, not a hard deadline, but yet another kind of deadline. We seem to be within a few days or a couple of weeks of needing to get this done because of all the protocols with Congress. Can you just give us your sense of how urgent it is to, to get done very soon if it's going to get done at all this year? So, you know, Congress has all kinds of interesting ways of changing the rules uh, of the game. But if you follow the rules very strictly under TPA, I think... You know, House Speaker Ryan went through that this last week and looking at the clock and the time schedule, if you were very strict on that, I think he's absolutely right. We're either past the deadline or right at the deadline and, and you might get a few extra days based on ITC review um, and things like that. But we're, we're close to that. But there are creative ways in which the Congress and the White House can deal with this if they get a deal. And so, you know, de deadlines may be replaced by other deadlines. My bigger concern is the threat by Secretary Ross, which said that steel and aluminum duties, which we have an exemption up until June 1st, he basically said, we'll see how NAFTA negotiations go. A veiled threat, yeah. in my view, and completely inappropriate uh, given our relationship with Canada. And then you have the threat from the president himself. Uh, who has said he'd tear up NAFTA, rip it up, bad agreement. And so my concern with that is that was his language in the campaign. He's leaned in on that language a few times during his administration. And uh, he has demonstrated his ability to rip up agreements. And so I have continually said the worst thing that could happen is that somebody quits the negotiation as opposed to continuing. So, so, again, you're so familiar with Canada-U.S. relations. Yeah. How do you yeah. see Canada best playing its cards over the next short term with these, these matters hanging over their heads? So I, I would say the following. Um, first of all, for all of you who watch this, 
They, you know, what happens at the very last end of trade negotiations is when a lot can happen. And even in the darkest period of when movement, I remember in those last days of negotiating when we were doing TPP, how it looked like nobody was going to move off of uh, off of the things that they were they they said were so important, but yet there was compromise. So there's compromise to happen here, and there is a deal to happen. And I think the prime minister is absolutely right when he says there is a good deal that can happen. The real question is, does the U.S. administration actually want a deal? And if they do, it's there. If they don't want a deal, almost anything anybody else could you know do as a negotiating partner. If if the other side doesn't want a deal then uh, it's going to be very difficult to get one done. And I think that's what's going to come out in the next uh, short period of time. I don't want to say days or weeks, but in the next short period of time, it'll demonstrate whether the U.S. administration and the USTR actually wants a deal or not. That's, uh, that's the question. Ambassador Heyman, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. For 17 years, Beverly McLaughlin was Canada's Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, the longest serving and the High Court's first female Chief Justice. She retired last December. Ms. McLaughlin has continued writing about the law, but in a very different way, as a writer of fiction. Ah, but is it all fiction? Her first novel is called Full Disclosure. Joining us now, former Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah. Delighted to be here, Eric. Um, so what have you been containing all of these years that you could finally let out after so many writing decisions on the Supreme Court? Yeah, well, before I ever became a judge, which is a very long time ago, before I became a judge at the trial level in 81, I uh, had started to write a little fiction. Uh, and uh, I would have pursued that, but then I was uh, offered a place on the bench and I decided to become a judge. And it's not really compatible, I decided, with a career as a judge. So I put it aside for almost 40 years and, uh, and uh, didn't think about it very much at all, if at, if at all. And then when I was fi facing mandatory retirement, I said, well, uh, what am I going to do now? And I, I it came back to me, and I thought, I should give it a try again. So I started getting up at 5 a.m. and doing it, and pretty soon I had a little bit of a story going, and one thing led to another. So now, uh, much to my amazement, I'm a published author. <laughs> well, and here it is. This is the book, Full Disclosure. Um, the main character, Jilly Truitt, mm -hmm. she is a Canadian lawyer, a yes. woman, so there seem to be some connections to your life, um, but she has a lot of issues in her life that yeah. maybe aren't so. To what degree, over these 40 years, would the story have changed from when you first took it up then and, and finished it now? Well, I did conceive the character then. Uh, the story is completely different. I mean, 40 years is a long time or in the, in, in the history of, a, of the world, and uh, there weren't cell phones then, there weren't people mm -hmm. weren't using laptops. Uh, and society has changed, the way women's issues were regarded, justice issues, and so on. So I started from scratch. I used my characters, and I just built a contemporary story. And, um, and it was a new story, totally different. You know, it has been reviewed well already. Um, the you, the uh, re reviews have been positive. It is both a good read, but also there seems to be a lot of reading between the lines to sort of interpret if there's anything from your more recent legal past that we can read into the story that you're telling. Well, you know, uh, it is all fiction. I'll assure everyone that uh, there's, there's nothing here from my actual life or my 
time as a judge. But, you know, my passion is justice and the legal system, and that's where I've spent all my life. So, of course, some of the same themes come through. Um, uh, and uh, uh, violence against women is there. Uh, the way it is to practice law in a, in, in a tough profession as a woman. Uh, uh, these and various other things come through. And, of course, there's a trial, and the criminal justice system is there. And uh, I think it's a very efficient trial by modern standards, but people may look at this or that ruling and find it interesting. But there's nothing, nothing directly connected to my experience. Some of this you didn't have to, I guess, research, because you would just have it in your back pocket. That's right. Well, they say write about what you know, and if I'd had to research this, it would have been very, it would have taken a lot longer. And uh, uh, so there was very little research involved. I did a bit of checking here and there, but that was basically it. The rest came from, from my lived experience. You've, uh, you've blazed a trail as a woman in the law. Mm -hmm. um, are there lessons that you've been able to bring forward either in the book or that you would want to share with us now? Well, uh, one lesson I think is that uh, you have to, uh, be determined and uh, not give up easily. Uh, there's that mental fortitude, that backbone that uh, is so important. I think it was important in my career. Not that I ever thought about it very much, but in retrospect, I don't think I ever resiled either before a challenge. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, uh, and that spirit, I think, that comes through in my main character. Now, she's a very different person in all ways than me, but uh, maybe that part of me is part of her. Let me ask you a little bit about your own career here. Mm -hmm. the, um, uh, the, what would be the most significant impact you feel you've, you've had on the bench? Uh, well, I'd, I'd like, I, I could say uh, charter law. I could say indigenous law. Those have been hugely important areas, and my career spanned them completely. Uh, the charter was adopted and the Indigenous Rights Constitutional Protection in 1982. I became a judge in 81. So I've been there the whole mm -hmm. time. It's been my constant companion. And of course, I've had to participate in, in a lot of cases on those areas, and I think they're very important areas. But uh, apart from that and on another level completely, it sometimes has seemed to me that the most significant part, particularly about being uh, a female chief justice is the example you set, the role model you set. Uh, so many people c have come up to me over the years with their little daughters in hand or whatever and say, it's just so important to my daughter or my cousin or my niece or to me that you are there. So part of it, I think, is just that I was a woman at a time when people were uh, really hungry for um, women in leadership possessions, and, 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 and they wanted stories to tell. They wanted to be able to say to their daughters and their little girls and boys, uh, Here's, here is what you can do. And uh, I had underestimated that when I was first mm -hmm. uh, made Chief Justice. I hadn't thought that would be uh, a big impact, but it was. And it didn't have that much to do with me personally or what I tried to do. It was just that I was there. You've also wanted to offer people a chance to get better access to the legal system, to not be feel it is so daunting. Um, that can apply to women, but it can apply to everyone. Everyone. And you know it's an inclusive message. 
the law is there for everybody in society, women, men, children, and it's got to work for them all. So this is why I was so keen on access to justice, and I continue to be, and I will be after retirement, working very hard in this field. What are the challenges that are still ahead, you think, in Canadian law? Uh, well, uh, the challenges are to uh, continue the path we've started down, which is uh, reduce delays, reduce costs, uh, so that ordinary people find other means of providing legal advice and services so that people who don't have a lot of means can get justice because I believe that's their fundamental right. Uh, any decisions you would see differently now than 40 years ago or just that you view the world differently than you might have then? Well, obviously one does view the world differently, but uh, I've been in a process uh, for just the memory bank of the court going over with an archivist some of my decisions. and. And actually, you know, I don't think things have changed that much on the fundamental values uh, and, uh, and themes that go through my work. Uh, certainly, uh, as you would expect in any human endeavor, uh, you sometimes look back on something and say, well, I could have said it better or perhaps I missed a nuance or something. But on the whole, uh, I'm, I, I think I've tried to uh, be true to uh, my resolve of understanding the case as well as I can and deciding it as wisely as I can and uh, whether I've done that or not in all cases that's for others to decide but I've tried to do my best. We don't have a lot of time I want to ask you about uh, you're going to Hong Kong so you, it, it, I read that you it wasn't that easy to give up being a judge and it seems like you're not going to be. Entirely. Yeah well uh, this is I'm not moving to Hong Kong for those who'd like to get rid of me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stay in Canada but I uh, will be sitting on the Hong Kong Final part, Court of Appeal. It's part of their uh, agreement with China uh, on the handover that they maintain the, the British style justice system and that they have a foreign jurist on a panel, each panel, and so they have a roster of these people, mostly from England, uh, one or two from Australia, and now they've asked me. So I'll probably spend three or four weeks a year in Hong Kong, in, and, starting in 19. And coming back to your writing, is there is there more fiction? Is there another Jilly Truitt or other fiction uh, or well, non-fiction? Uh, a lot of people have, have asked me. They say, there has to be another one. We want more. And uh, and uh, I'd certainly like to give that a try. Right now, I'm very busy. I'll probably bring out a, try to bring out a, a memoir where I discuss, uh, through the lens of my own experience, some of the issues and passions that have driven my life, and then perhaps uh, more, more fiction. When have you ever not been busy? So. Yeah, well, I love being busy. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure. You can just see Parliament Hill from the Mad Radish, a favorite eatery of Scott Bryson, whose Treasury Board offices are right around the corner. The restaurant's variety of salads are perfect for lunch, and this is where we meet with the Liberal Cabinet Minister for some food for thought. I'm glad to see they don't have just radishes here. Um, Scott Bryson, thank you for joining us on Food for Thought. Delighted to be here with you. Should I call you Minister or President uh, Bryson of the Treasury Board? Scott works. Scott works here. And, uh, um, what is it you uh, liked about this dish and this uh, restaurant? Well, I, I really like uh, this restaurant. I like Mad Radish very much. I like salads. Um, and I eat from here a lot, usually at my desk, um, and, and, and which is my office is just around the corner. Uh, but off, often, like last night, I had it for supper at home. Max and I had uh, their uh, smoked salmon salad and their um, 
uh, off the Waldorf salad, which is a chicken salad. And in fact, tonight for supper, Max is away, so I'm batching it. So I'm going to have this dish again. So I've had, I've had this. This will be supper last night, lunch today, and supper again tonight. I will have uh, basically the same dish. And, and did this salmon come from somewhere that you were? Well, it's funny you should ask. Funny I should ask because this salmon is not just any salmon. This salmon is sustainable blue salmon, which is a sustainable aquaculture company, on land aquaculture, oh, really? which is about 10 minutes from my home in Cheverry, Hans County, Nova Scotia. They're on the Red Bank Road in Center Burlington, Hans County. And the Red Bank Road is the road where my mother was born and raised, and they had a farm on the Red Bank Road. Uh, so it's kind of tied in a little bit to our our family um, and my home and it's a great product and this product is they're, they're shipping now globally I've served uh, their their salmon actually to to uh, Catherine McKenna of course our environment minister at our home in Cheverry it's a fantastic product but this is actually their salmon smoked yes and it's really great and there's this this salad has a real kick to it uh, it's it's kind of spicy uh, but it, it tastes really good. I really like it based on the fact that this will be my um, third, or no, third my second meal of three. Uh, of three, my, my trifecta uh, over a 24-hour period. It's a land, land operation. That, that makes more sense. I was worried that you had salmon sort of, you'd watch the water go out from the Bay of Fundy and then the salmon would be left flopping. Exactly. And exactly. And and that, would be a, that would be a, ch a challenge because we do the <laughs> highest tides in, in the, in the yeah. world. But it, it's, um, it's a really great product, and they have, they have grown a lot over the last few years. And from an environmental perspective, um, it is really sustainable as an aquaculture technology. Um, and it's part of our Atlanta Grow strategy is actually focusing on growing uh, our food production in Atlanta, Canada, in the kind of areas where we have comparative advantage, and one of the areas is uh, sustainable aquaculture and as a country we view as a government we view food and food production sustainable food production as probably the one of the greatest opportunities Canada has growth area okay, well you have an emerging middle class in places like China and India and the need to feed them high quality food and high quality protein mm -hmm. uh, Canada is well positioned to develop the, the technologies to do that and it's got to be done in a globally carbon-constrained environment. So finding new ways to produce high-quality food that does not contribute too much to uh, climate change requires technology, and we're well-positioned to do it. And the technology they use uh, to develop their online aquaculture has some real proprietary qualities to it. But the best reason I'm, I eat it is that it tastes really good. Well, we're out of time, so it's uh, great to be able to... No, 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 we've got plenty of time. We... Sorry, I get excited about <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, some years ago, you came uh, out of the closet to become a liberal. And, uh, and I thought it was a very active time in your life, both personally and in terms of politics. Um, yeah. Were those things, were they intertwined at all in terms of coming out and coming out? Yeah, it's, it's a good point because I think it was the autumn of uh, 2002 um, that, and, and coming up to um, 
uh, I think it was actually November or December 2002 yeah. when I officially came out as, as being gay. And I wasn't really in. In fact, I was outed uh, during my first campaign in 1997. In fact, um, even before the campaign started. Somebody was trying to use that? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, but, so I never really was in, but it was unofficial. Everyone knew I told my colleagues in Progressive Conservative Caucus in fact, uh, shortly after the election, I had told them, uh, uh, and which was a surprise to, to some of them. But as he came out to my caucus uh, at the urging of uh, Jean Charest, who was my first leader, and he said, look, anytime you want to come out to caucus, you should just do that, because he knew. Yeah. And he actually encouraged me to do it, and, uh, and I did it so our Progressive Conservative Caucus knew and everything was fine in that sense. What really created a discomfort for me was around the issue of uh, same-sex marriage and equal marriage because that was a big issue was happening right during, at the same during, time. during that period of time. And I had participated in the late 90s in the House of Commons on same-sex pension benefits. Um, and I was proud when the Chrétien government granted those. That was for federal public servants. But this was a time when I guess a bunch of things were happening. Uh, one is I came out officially and two, uh, the merger between the two parties became yes. uh, an issue. And the party with which the Progressive Conservative Party was merging, the Alliance Party or the Reform Party, depending on what you wanted to call it, had very different views on these kinds of issues than the Progressive Conservative Party. There were, you know, and, and, and under the leadership of people like Joe Clark. And uh, we were at a point when, um, I knew I had to join a new political party because it would be uh, dishonest to call the new Conservative Party the same political party as the old Progressive Conservative Party, given its positioning on, on social issues, particularly one that was pretty important to me at that time, that was same-sex marriage. Or another party that may have more better reflected my values uh, at the age of, I guess I was 30... Um, 35 or 35 so, right? at the yeah. time, which was different. You know, my, my values at 35 were probably quite different than those when I was 11, when I was taken to my first progressive conservative meeting uh, by my uncle. So, um, you know, I chose to follow my values as opposed to follow my party, uh, like one follows a hockey team or something like that. Well, the Liberal Party w itself was becoming more progressive because it wasn't that long before that that the party had said, oh, yeah, marriage man and a woman to the exclusion of all others. Yeah. That was the Liberal Party as recently as 2000, but it was progressing as the courts m moved forward with it. At the same time, the Conservative Party was dropping the word conserv uh, progressive. Well, I remember uh, there was a vote, I think in 1999, in the House of Commons by, it was, it was during the debate on same-sex pension benefits, yeah. and the Canadian Alliance uh, brought forward a motion uh, that marriage should remain the union of one man to one woman to the exclusion of all others and that the government ought to use all legal and constitutional means to, to defend that definition which could mean the notwithstanding clause as an example. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was one of I believe about 40 MPs to vote against that uh, motion yeah. at that time uh, which w was a little controversial. There were um, 
I think a couple of my other progressive conservative MPs from Quebec had uh, voted against it at the time. But I spent some time in the Liberal lobby, the government lobby, lobbying uh, government members on that to vote against this, and some of them actually did. But that was um, um, that was a it was a time when a lot of change was happening. Society was just coming a to a tipping point because society in Canadian society even then said same uh, marriage, man and a woman, nah, that sounds about right to me. And and as soon as the Supreme Court said mm, that's actually discriminatory, yeah. society kind of said. Yeah, okay, I get that. Which, which is what, bring, what brings me, that, that's what brings me to uh, one of the most amazing acts of political leadership uh, in our time was the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Um, if if uh, Pierre Trudeau had not done what he did at that time, I would not be doing what I'm doing today. And I'm not talking about my job necessarily, yeah. but I'm talking about my life in general. Uh, because I'm part of a generation uh, where I can... Um, uh, be open and honest about who I am uh, and, and serve the people of Canada in a, in a number of roles that I found very fulfilling as a member of Parliament and other roles I've been given by Prime Ministers um, have a, a, a spouse mm -hmm. uh, a husband in fact and uh, raise a family I mean to, to, when I was uh, uh, dealing with as a teenager this whole idea that I might be gay, and I was fighting it very much. One of the things I felt that that, that meant would be that I would have to do a lot of trade-offs, both in terms of my my career, because I, I, I liked politics very early, and I wanted to go into politics, and I felt that that was going to be pretty much off... off uh, yeah, in, in rural uh, Nova there. Scotia at that time. I didn't think that that would be on. Um, having a spouse and a family, that well, that's not going to happen. Um, that was another and I, I, I had to kind of rejig my expectations for life or potentially um, do something which a lot of people um, had to do at that time and they, they compartmentalized their life and they, they would, would in a lot of cases marry and have um, a, a wife and a family and uh, pursue their career. and. And, and in a lot of cases have another life that was quite compartmentalized from that. And I'm not judging them because if I were of that generation, I very possibly would have ended up doing the, the same thing. But I just feel lucky to be part of a generation where um, I can have such a, a privileged life. Uh, to be part of a, to be born in Canada is a, is a lottery, that's a, yeah. that's a lottery win. To be born as part of this generation is, a, is, is just an incredible good fortune. Yeah. Uh, and to have lived life uh, during a time when there's been so much change and progress, and, and I've benefited from that. Uh, I, I feel very fortunate. I wanted to ask you about the Charter of Rights. We actually brought one with us because it seems to me the Charter has that particular provision of equality without discrimination, and it says in particular, for certain groups, and one of them that's missing, it seems to me, is sexual orientation. Are you struck by that at all? That it's that it goes through gender, or, or well, sex, and it says race and ethnicity, but um, but it's not sexual orientation. And it seems to me, at the time, they couldn't put that in there. It was still radioactive politically. Yeah, that that that's interesting. Despite the fact that Pierre Trudeau decriminalized homosexual acts 
I believe in 1968, um, and uh, which, which I guess I would say that I, my, the first year or so or two years of my life, uh, I was destined for a life of criminality. Uh, but but the, the, it's interesting that they did not put those words in there at that time. Yeah. But notwithstanding that, uh, it has been a game changer um, for uh, LGBTQ2 uh, uh, community members, but also for people with disabilities. I mean, it has made a huge difference in the lives of Canadians with, with disabilities. Um, it, ethnocultural uh, minorities in Canada. I think it has, it took multiculturalism to a different level as yeah. well, in terms of, of codifying the principle that we, we uh, do not subject uh, minority rights to majority rules. Yes. Um, it's very easy uh, in a House of Commons uh, to, if, without that Charter of Rights, I do not think that governments would have acted uh, on a lot of the things that the governments have done subsequently, whether it's same-sex pension benefits or same-sex marriage, because these are issues that are so contentious that governments by nature uh, are, are, are worried sometimes about being part of very divisive debates. But the great thing about the Charter is it has forced, it, it has forced governments to take issues off the back burner and to deal with them. Yeah. And, and uh, in the 2004 election, there was a poll done on same-sex marriage uh, in my riding just around the time of the election. I think Conrad Wynn did the poll at that time. And it showed something like 70% of my constituents at that time did not support same-sex marriage. Mm -hmm. uh, but 50% of my constituents intended on voting for me in the Liberal Party. Interesting. And, it, it and wasn't, for them, it wasn't going to be a a tipping point kind of consideration. Yeah, which, which is, a, I think, an important lesson for anyone in politics is that you gotta, you got to decide what is the right thing yeah. and what you believe in and be prepared to defend it. And people may disagree with you, but they might still vote for you because they respect you. Uh, and that's not on every issue. There are is issues that for some people that is, the, that is a ballot question. Uh, but you've got to be honest to who you are and what you believe in and people may not agree with you, but they'll respect you for your honesty. If, if, you, if you're a windsock and you basically uh, act as an echo chamber to anybody who talks to you, uh, I, I don't think that sounds like a lot of fun, and I don't think long-term you're going to do very well you're, in politics. You're not, leading the, the, you're not leading society into the future. You're just sort of catching, as you say, catching the wind and hanging on. I mean, I, I get a kick out of uh, uh, the fact that, I mean, Rose and Claire, and before I went to work uh, this morning, I had a chance to read a couple books to them. And they, they, they will grow up having no idea kind of what happened prior to their birth in terms of uh, what created a, a Canada, a modern Canada, uh, where they can live the kind of life that I really hope they will live. And, and uh, one of the things I want them to grow up is with an awareness uh, that politics matters, that government matters. Uh, there's, a, there's a sense, I think, among a lot of young people today that somehow government doesn't yeah. matter. And there's a cynicism about government matter. But if you actually connect the dots for people in terms of things that are important to them, um, 
decisions that were made a long time ago that nobody recognized the importance of at that time have made a, a Canada today that is would would be difficult to imagine uh, 30 years ago, uh, and and it's easy to take for granted uh, the importance of decisions even today. The decisions we're making, like for instance, on investments in Indigenous. Uh, youth and education and what difference that could make to a generation of indigenous youth in 20 years. I mean these these can be game changers and they matter. We're just about out of time but I just I, I want to ask you about uh, about your daughters. They're four years old yeah. and um, and like do they have the t-shirts that say I have two dads? Uh, like are they are they because there's going to be at least a little bit of an adjustment even if society is much more welcoming to something like this nowadays. Um, at some point, are they noticing that? Well, you see, they, they have a daddy and a papa, because okay. Maxim is a, is a francophone, yes. and it may not be obvious, but I am an anglophone, and, <laughs> and uh, I, we speak to them in French and English, but from time to time, when I speak to them in French, uh, Rose will say to me, uh, Daddy? That's not your language. Don't speak French. You speak <laughs> English. I say, no, no, Rose, partir de maintenant, je vais parler exclusivement en français avec toi. I will speak only in French to you from now on. And then she'll say, Scott, you listen to me. You don't speak French. You speak funny. English. So there, it's, I don't get any support for my linguistic capacities. But the, the thing is, they are, um, it's, it's so natural now. In my riding, which is a, a rural Nova Scotian riding, my children, our children, are accepted so beautifully, whether we are at a, in the basement of our church at a church supper, or taking them uh, to the Hans County Exhibition, the, the, uh, the country's oldest agricultural fair, uh, or uh, to McDonald's on Saturday morning, where I'll take them in Windsor to have breakfast before I take them to see my 94-year-old dad and my 97-year-old aunt at the, at the seniors' home. And then after we go to the farm, Wolfville Farmer's Market, where we're gonna have uh, uh, lunch. And, and everywhere they go, People are so loving. Yeah, that's nice. Um, and uh, Hillary Clinton's book of, of it taking a community uh, to raise, uh, takes a village to raise a child. When we are at home in rural Nova Scotia, we feel very much part of a community that absolutely loves and supports Max and me and our daughters. And they're, they're going to grow up, I, I can see it now, they're going to grow up uh, with an awful lot of love and support. From family, we've got a very supportive family, both Max's yep. family and my family. I've got a, uh, my sister and is very involved with them and they've got uh, well, it's, uh, uh, and they're just part of, I mean, they've got, they're four years old and they've got a 94 year old grandfather Yes. and my father, which is, <laughs> which is kind of fun. The, the kind of cute thing is that my father's favorite movie is The Sound of Music. And he watches it every Christmas, and it has right. throughout my lifetime. And um, my daughters love the sound of music, and they listen to you know Do Re Mi or So Long Farewell, and they know the words and stuff. But uh, which shows you it was pretty good film or play that can unite uh, a, a generation 90 years apart. But but it, it's just kind of great a lot, and and I, I think they're they're going to have. Um, a life full of love, not just from Max and me and our families, but from uh, uh, the whole community in uh, Nova Scotia and Annapolis Valley, which I feel very privileged. Um, 
it's, uh, that's wonderful to hear. And, uh, and you and we have lived through tumultuous social times. And so uh, thank you very much yeah. for joining us today well, on uh, can Food, I, can food I, for Thought. Can I ask a, a personal question? Uh, when do I get to eat this salad? Right, I'm, right, I'm hungry. Right, right now. This is lovely. I'm Eric Sorensen. Thank you for listening to the West Block podcast. For more, go to our website, thewestblock.ca. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And tune in again next week for another West Block.